0: This is
1: Bipocalypse. Hey everyone, welcome back to this year's edition of Bipocalypse. My name is Angie Antonio and I'm with Amira. And, and we are your hosts this year for Bipocalypse. If you don't know already, Bipocalypse is one of the number one podcasts <laughs> at Western. And we cover a range of topics that affect the Bipoc bi- bi- community. And today, we are going to be talking about sex. So, I'm sure you guys have heard of sex and everything like that, <laughs> um, but we have some amazing guests with us today, and we're going to allow them to introduce themselves, so, yeah, go ahead.
0: Hey guys, my name is Emmy. I'm a fourth year bio major, medsci minor, so in addition to kind of my education, which is a bit more the anatomy and physiology behind um, the human body, and, and as an extension, sex. Um I work as the director of communications and co-run a nonprofit that recently just got registered with the government which is great. Okay. Um called menstruation redefined and we kind of tackle menstrual equity and just general sex education and health advocacy education.
2: Hi, I am Dr. Sarah Blanchette. I'm a professor here. I teach in the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies department. I teach a course called The Body. Um, I'm, it's a pleasure uh, to be here. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to the conversations. Uh, my research generally deals with uh, health humanities, so looking at um, these types of questions in relation to literature across North America. Thank you so
1: much for being here with us, and I'm going to pass it to Elvira to start us off on our
0: topic. Yeah, so a good place to be starting would be about the talk. I mean, we're all grown, so I think we've all had a version of the talk. Not me. <laughs> but other people, okay. Like my like I my background is Indian and, and I'm Muslim as well. So my parents are very progressive, mm. but we did not have the talk. My mom handed me a book and went like here's what you need to know about periods and sex. <laughs> and if I had questions, I'd go to her, but I didn't have questions. I think I was lucky. My parents both pursued careers in the STEM field. And my mom's a teacher, actually, as well. So her knowing kind of already what was in the school curriculum, I don't think she ever felt the need to have a sit-down talk and talk because she kind of knew at, like, what age I would be learning what and, like, through what. And I think in a more casual way, she would just start talking about things that she thought were age-appropriate in, like, casual conversation. So she would say, like, oh, I heard about this in the news. Um, Someone got sexually assaulted, let's say, and it was really unfortunate. Um, do you want to have a conversation about that? Mm-hmm. So it was a bit more casual, and we never just had like one sit down talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember as a kid, I would just go up and ask random questions. I think in first grade, actually. Um, I was like, Mom, Dad, like, why do guys stand up to pee? <laughs> and my, my parents were like, how do you know a <pack?" laughs> yeah.
1: Dr. Bansha, how about you?
2: yeah I don't know if this is dating me and it was just like in my generation or if it's because my parents are catholic but I did not get a talk at all I yeah I didn't grow up with a talk Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know yeah what to to speak to other than I think you you kind of brought up the um you know menstruation was talked about and that's kind of what girls get as the talk so I think that that's kind of problematic right that that kind of gets equated well now you have all the information you need (laughs) and it's kind of um yeah this distinction between sexuality and actually understanding our bodies function yeah
0: Yeah. that's a really good point because a lot of women that I knew like in my extended family my family um like like I said my parents are quite progressive so like if I wanted to have a conversation about this stuff they would be willing to but a lot of girls who I know just didn't get one and then they'd be told about periods and then when they would get married they were expected to be abstinent until marriage yeah, yeah. and then on their wedding night they wouldn't know what sex is and then they would have sex with their husband but not understand any of it yeah. and not know what happened mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that this is like I don't want to give it a term or anything but it feels like if you're having sex with someone who doesn't know what sex is, even if they're a grown person, mm-hmm. there's like a lack of informed consent. Right?
1: Yeah, I think our most people's parents um, denied having that talk with their kids because it's a way of like I guess protecting them. Because I think mm-hmm. about my family, like we, I didn't really have a sex talk. It was really just don't have sex,
0: <laughs> like <laughs> so that was
1: really good. Um, don't let boys touch you. That kind of conversation. But I found that with the years and with time. Like, I'm so much more open with my parents. It's yeah. so shocking because I would be so scared to bring up these conversations. Or, like, when the sex scene comes up, comes out oh, on, a teen, on the movie. It's like, oh, my gosh. But now, like, I feel like with time. Um, but, yeah, that idea of, like, being abstinent before having sex. Like, it's like, did the, our parents really expect us not to, like, you know, learn these things or understand these things? It's unfortunate, though, that oftentimes... Um, it's culture or like the things around us that kind of shape that view of sex Mm -hmm. and that kind of moves into our question of how do you guys think that sex is shaped by culture, tradition, shame, virginity, all those topics how, um, I mean what do you think about that?
0: I don't know if this is something you know Alvira, but in some parts of um, South Asia before colonialism, so before the Victorian era um, it only made sense that clothing would be loosely draped across Mm -hmm. your body because it's a hot climate and that's just what you're used to so um, there's like a traditional garment called the sari and women would never wear a shirt with it. So they would be bare-breasted and they would just wear the piece of cloth. And then when the colonialism happened and uh, I guess the settlers came and they, they saw that people were bare-breasted, um, this is kind of in the, against their like ideas of mm-hmm. morals, purity, culture, because um, in the Victorian era it was like high necklines and um, so that was kind of introduced into our culture. And it's interesting now because if you go to like uh Desi or South Asian culture now, it's like, oh, you should cover this area yeah. like, with the shawl or whatever. But yeah. historically it hasn't been like that. Yeah. And that's kind of introduced through like this yeah. know, intermingling of cultures. So I think it's really interesting to talk about. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And Dr. Banshad, I want to pose to you, how do you feel about the research that's currently being conducted about sexual health
2: amongst um, BIPOC communities? As you guys have kind of really pointed out already, a lot of um, research on sexual health is very much centered on like the white male body as being like the norm of what sexuality is, and a lot of hypersexualization or fetishization of different bodies is in order it is from that white settler perspective, and it all relates back to the you know, dehumanization, um, white supremacy, those types of things. And because of that, there's lots of standards of sexuality that are applied to different communities that that don't apply to them. Those aren't the standards that they would set for themselves. So one of the things I kind of wanted to talk about in terms of sexual health is kind of expanding or how um, black indigenous and people of color have expanded what we think of when we talk about something like reproductive rights. Mm-hmm. So often, especially in white feminism, we get, you know, right to choose discourse and abortion discourse. And those are important conversations, but a lot of BIPOC um, feminists have addressed how those aren't the only conversations that need to happen around reproductive <laughs> rights. So for instance, black feminist um, Dr. Zakita Luna, her book reproductive rights as human rights. So she's arguing, about how it's important to have the right to have children. So for low-income people or for people who need the aid of technology, like lesbian, gay, um, bisexual, trans individuals, two-spirit individuals might need that reproductive assistance in order to become uh, parents, uh, as well as the right to parent with dignity. So um, parents that might be incarcerated in um, Dr. Amrita Pandey's book Wom- Wombs in Labor Transnational Commercial Surrogacy in India she talks about the irony of the fact that uh, there's so much commercial transnational surrogacy in India so families from North America who are paying for surrogates in India um, even though she describes it as being a very anti-natalist state so these women are told don't have children of your own but sure you can you know, get paid to have these white babies uh, and then there's also Dr. Karen Stote's book An Act of Genocide and she talks about um, the forced sterilization of indigenous women in Turtle Island um, you know there's also the history of residential schools which has taken indigenous children away from their families the foster care system the 60s scoop which took indigenous children away from their families the problematic birth alerts which took indigenous children away from their families so in just as you know some of all those different things just this example of reproductive health and how all these different black indigenous and people of color have expanded what we need to talk about when we're thinking about reproductive health shows us how sexual health and all these different politics really have been so limited in their framework and now we're expanding them and talking more about um, how all these things need to really be dismantled through this critical race lens. Thank you for that, wow. <laughs> that was yeah. a lot, that was sorry. So I-, <laughs>
1: so I wanted to talk a bit about how social media, um, again like we talk about culture and oftentimes even our friends and family can make us have different views of our own bodies and how um, we look at ourselves in terms of sex and you know how that affects us so if anyone wants to kind of expand on that in the in terms of like how social media has made you feel concerning
0: sexual health I think social media I think we sit at a very very interesting time where like when we were growing up I think like I remember we had fat computer. I know they're not called fat. Computers, <laughs> <but> <laughs> the checking one, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, like, while I was growing up, like, my parents did not know a lot about the Internet. So a lot of, well, like, obviously they kept an eye on what I did. But a lot of it they didn't understand. And, like, saying that, I think it's really interesting if you look at it. Like Tumblr culture from when we were 13.
2: And I'm gonna mention like eating
0: disorders here, so mm-hmm. a trigger warning there or a content warning. But like, there was a lot of like pro anorexia, pro this type of like, this is how your body should look like, this is how men will like your body. And if you don't look like this, then you are not worthy of anything. But at the same time, you have to be a virgin, and at the same time, you have to look. Perfect. But if you wear makeup, you are problematic, and if you're not light-skinned, then you're problematic. Mm-hmm. So I think when growing up at that time, it was hard because I was like, I don't look like anything that you're telling me I'm supposed to look like. But now that we're a bit older and there's more inclusiveness, I think that may be a word. Um, it's like my younger sister, she's 12, so I get happy to see that when she watches TV. She gets to see more people who look like her, Mm -hmm. her body type, her height, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think growing up, it had a really negative effect on the way that I looked at myself. Yeah.
1: Being a black woman as well, like there's so much in the beauty industry and just everything about um, how men perceive women, like you said, light skin, um, curly hair, you know, like the typical body, like, um, you know, I grew up being a dark skin woman and just thinking, oh my God, I'm not beautiful at all. Mm -hmm. You know, these guys would not want to be with me. But I've seen with time that now it's not a case of, okay, like she's beautiful. It's like, oh, I just want to like have sex with her or yeah, you know, yeah. like oh, she, she, 100%. like I'm, I'm fetishizing this girl. Like she's, yeah. she has this, she has that. Like it's, it's more of that kind of view. It's not really like you're looking at me like I'm, I'm worth anything. Mm-hmm. It's like, you just want to have sex with oh, me. And exactly. I think what this also says is that our experiences really teach us so much about like all these topics. Like we mm-hmm. come to know this, not through education, yeah. not through the school system, through our own experiences, what our friends tell us. And again, culture shapes a lot for us. Dr. Ganshad, I wanted to pose a question at you. What do you think can be done to our curricula to change the way we think about
2: sexual health practices and make them less taboo? Uh, just drawing on some of the threads that you guys have already put down, you how what your idea of beauty or what your idea of the ideal body is, it's always coming from this kind of white, heteropatrial no. male gaze of like, how do I make myself beautiful for this? Yeah. You know, imagine, fabled white guy who's going to love me and all these kinds of things and that's kind of the pedestal so I think, you know, to answer the question you know, one, introducing sex education earlier you know, ideas of consent, gender different ideas about gender uh, diverse sexualities, you know, getting that done, but also just more importantly, decentering white, cisgender heteronormative perspectives within you know, sex education because that's the root of all of this, you know, fetishization hypersexualization is that we all need to make ourselves beautiful for this like mm-hmm. white male like um, mm-hmm. um like strange like erethial figure uh, <laughs> who's going to like give us all value and meaning, yeah. uh, but actually like you know as you're saying like you know you find it within yourself. That's mm. that's how you actually find uh, those things. But so much of our society is built on these kind of very damaging to to cis and transgender women uh, concepts of what beauty needs to be and how it's often. We we're talking about like the hymen, you know, based on. Pain.
0: (laughs) I think to add to that, I've noticed that a lot of our sexual education curriculum is kind of based on. a, like, no pregnancies, no SCLs, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's it, and then they'll have one class where they'll separate the guys and the girls, the mm-hmm. girls will get the menstruation talk, and the guys might get, like, a wet dreams talk. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the extent of, like, yeah. the extent. And maybe like, throwing a condom on a banana. On a, on <laughs> <the> banana <laughs> and of course. and then you're done. You're then like, for well, talk, there's no okay. talk on, um, fulfilling relationships, yeah. diversity, uh, there's nothing about, um, any of that, and I think it's... Very, like, important to dismantle yeah. this heteronormative yeah. kind of view on it first, and then second of all, like, approach it from more of a holistic view mm-hmm. instead of, be- like, these two things. And I always think about this one scene in Mean Girls. Like, at the very beginning, um, she misses a health class, and she's like, oh, what did I miss that day? And the coach is like, don't have sex. Abstinence. <laughs> yeah. And I just think of that every single time I have discussions on this topic because, yeah. like, although that's supposed to be a parody of what's going on yeah. in schools, it pretty much basically is, yeah. you know. Uh, And this, I'm only talking for cis women because, like, as a cis woman myself, I can't speak to a a non-cis experience. But, like, I find that, especially, like, on dating apps, for example, like, our age, like, if you're on Tinder, as, like, we try to explore ourselves and it's more acceptable for women to have sex, men now find it very easy, like, oh, women are down to have sex now. Everyone Great how way. can I make this an kind of awful <laughs> experience for you, <laughs> you know, our entire, like, like I think that like they've taken this opportunity where like it is a win for women to be um, comfortable in their sexuality and have sex should they choose to with whomever they want to. but it's also created this way for men to be able to stop seeing us as people uh-huh. and further objectify us. I don't know if you guys and have, I thought this too, but, like, I go there sometimes <laughs> when I'm sad and when I leave sadder. You're just it's like, no way. Go- I can't lie. no validation tastes so sweet.
1: In, but in that moment.
0: In that moment. <laughs> and then I'm like, ouch. Yikes. <laughs> yikes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. rape culture, all those things haven't. Like, the education on those things haven't. Caught up with the progression, prim- yeah. progression of sexual liberation. I so I think because of that, there's this huge gap where now it's even easier to manipulate women. Manip- yeah. Um, or any like manipulate anyone really who doesn't have yeah. proper understanding of. Yeah, and I think it's even worse for for women like non-white, non-straight white women because, like you know, you see a man, or, like, you see a guy, or, well, I'll use myself as an example, and I'll be like, oh, he's kind of cute, okay. And then my first immediate thought is, oh, he doesn't like brown
1: women. I, that's yeah? literally me. Every single time I may see a guy, in my head I'm thinking, okay, does he look like he likes black girls? Yeah, or, I need to
0: find out. let me yeah. stalk his Instagram, yeah. let's see the type of stuff because, who does he hang out with?
2: Yeah, who look he at he his followers, yeah. Because,
0: <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Especially, um, a lot of men from my own community, brown men, hate no one hates brown women the way they do. Yeah. They will <laughs> they will deprave us, insult us, whatever I they find can in their power.
1: I find that so common among like black people as well. Like black men just hate black women. Just hate them. Well not all of them, but like yeah, it's like yeah. it's like a like, lot of them. Why but I don't know like why a that's in, a thing. Culture. Um,
0: yeah. And it's interesting because they'll, they'll do the degrading thing. They'll do all of that. But at the end of the day, they will come back. Yeah! Oh my gosh! And they, you know what? They and they'll gonna... come back to make some poor girl Yeah! Literally! And they yeah, to come back to a pure virgin who's never looked another Like Yeah! A they yeah. Come back yeah. And just another way for them to manipulate and keep power over women. Yeah. They will understand. have sex with whoever they want to have sex with.
1: And they'll say, they'll come back to you and say, I want to make you my wife. Yeah.
0: And, and then they don't. The Madonna they're heart complex. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and then sure. yeah, it's just very interesting to see how it plays out in like actual relationships. <laughs> um essentially when a man sees woman as a whole, they see two types, um, one the Madonna and two the whore. So the Madonna is someone he can um essentially wife marry. Um and usually people that fit in that category are like people so the person who hopes to marry, his sisters, his mother, and those are all like good, <laughs> pure women who like follow his ideals. And then there's the whore, who's the liberated woman, who's um, more progressive. Um, and usually those women are the women that they will date for fun, for time pass, um, but when it's or even keep as mistresses, but when it's time to settle down, they can't differentiate. These two things, because Mm -hmm. a lot of the times they see the act of sex as doing it to an object or an objectifying thing. So they can no longer see this woman as a human person with her own feelings, emotions, um, past experiences. And it's kind of like, oh, this is like an objectifying, the person I can objectify, and this is the person I can have, like, be, like, fulfilling parts of, uh, or, like, intimate parts of a relationship of the sex.
2: Mind if I circle back to your question about curriculum? Because I feel like some of of the talking about you know holistic and the emotional and the intimate aspects of relationships and we're like what can we do to curriculum like we talk about it like it's biology like it's just bodies like it's you know words on a page but why aren't we talking about intimacy and how do you form intimate connections or how do you like create because sex is emotional and that Mm -hmm. just gets written out of curriculum right we want to talk about it like it's just biology and so I think one of the great things that you guys are addressing is that one of the reasons that we get these kind of the dehumanization the depersonalization the objectification of bodies is because we're not talking about bodies in sex education as emotional feeling things we're talking about them like these objects and then that perpetuates this terrible like you're talking about all the effects that that real people are feeling because of that
0: I Um, think a lot of teachers they didn't have these mm -hmm. conversations during their training growing up and then during their training where they don't feel comfortable to have these type of discussions with their class and oftentimes my um my mom says that her coworkers sometimes they just skip it because they're just uncomfortable mm-hmm. and there's no guidance. They've never been trained. You know, mm-hmm. they just randomly get placed in a class and all of a sudden they need to give like a class of ten year olds this talk that yeah. can fundamentally change their outlook. Dr. Blanchard,
1: I wanted to pose this back to you because I know that your one of your research interests is um, feminist bioethics yeah. and. I wanted to ask you, what is a common theme you find regarding the work of BIPOC women in the healthcare system?
2: Yeah, so unfortunately, <laughs> it's not going <laughs> to Sunshine, uh, the, the theme that I wanted to talk about is that, uh, you know, systemically black, indigenous and people of color, uh, p- particularly women, they just receive inferior health care. And this is because of the racist assumption that they just don't feel pain and yeah. their symptoms are not believed. And so this causes wide, widespread issues. Um, and for and uh, just two texts that I'll, I'll plug for you. Structures of indifference and indigenous life and death in a Canadian city. You should also read Unequal Treatment, Confronting Racial and Ethnic. Disparities in healthcare. Um, to, and so this is just like a fact. Like we, we just know that there's racial bias in healthcare, and that this causes uh, Black Indigenous and people and women of color to just receive inferior care. And importantly, I also wanted to, to raise two other issues that you know this is also a, a trend that's true for girls, not just women. Like you know you, your question was posed about women, but unfortunately this this also carries over to girls. And Black girlhood studies in particular has looked at what they term the adultification yeah. of Black girls. Black girls are treated um, comparatively as, as if they're older or more mature than white peers, and this reads to all leads to all sorts of things like overcriminalization, hyper punishment, hypersexualization, and inferior care when they're in the healthcare system. So I wanted to plug a couple black uh, girlhood scholars: Dr. Ashley Smith, Dr. Ruth Nicole Brown, Dr. Nushans, and one more thing I want to talk about. So black girlhood studies, I think that's really important to think about that, you know, when we're thinking about women in healthcare, girls in healthcare are also just not having horrible time, but um, black maternal health care and just maternal health care in general in the US, in U S in particular, but also in Canada is, is tragic. So black mothers are three times more likely to die in childbirth in the U S than the national average. Uh, and eight times more likely to die in childbirth in New York city. So I don't know what's going on in New York city, That's crazy, but yeah. it's, it's, it is, it's a tragedy. It's so horrible. The facts are there. We know this is happening. and still nothing's being done about it. Uh, it's even getting worse because of COVID. So there's a wonderful article that I'd like to point uh, listeners to, Black Maternal Health Crisis, COVID-19, and the Crisis of Care. Uh, These are, yeah, this is life or death for people. Um, They're dying because their symptoms are not being believed. They're going and asking for care and they're not receiving care. I just could not be more disgusted that that is a reality and that we know it's a reality and nothing's being done about it. So not setting positive, but that I think is the most important theme that I would want to highlight for listeners, that that is just true.
0: And I feel like a lot of women who do go to ask for care are very just gaslighted. Like, yeah. I have these symptoms like, yeah. because um, a lot of women have periods. They just assume like higher pain tolerance. My period pain should not be having me in a bed for a and week straight. The period Sorry. pain
2: is also real pain. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> like, exactly. I don't know why it gets treated like yeah. a special other different Se- kind of yeah. pain yeah, yeah, yeah. that you and should somehow be able to tolerate. If it was yeah. back pain, then maybe it would help you.
0: Yeah, it, no, 100% <laughs> like How you're still expected to be able to do everything. And then like, every day, every, every other month, I learned some new period symptom. <laughs> <laughs> and I get upset, and you're like, really? I'm angry. like, oh, my feet are swollen. I can not be alive. Sure, I mean, like, I'm going through pain. And, oh, it's very upsetting. <laughs> I think to circle back, also, one more thing I just realized my roommates and I talk a lot too about these kind of topics. Mm. And we talked about how there's an added layer of shame when discussing these topics, and a lot of the times, individuals aren't willing to be coming with their health practitioners Mm -hmm. because there's an underlying sense of shame. You know, when they ask questions, are you sexually active? Do you drink? Do you do drugs? Um, What kind of pain? Where are you feeling it? And not only is there kind of the shame surrounding like um, drinking and sex but there's also the added level of shame of like, oh, you're not supposed to talk about your body parts to like a stranger. You shouldn't be talking about it. Mm -hmm. It's not like modest. It's kind of taboo. You shouldn't be talking about it to a third party stranger. And because of that, they're not being able to get the accurate or correct care that they need because they're not sharing all the required background or contextual yeah. information. I think that in itself is a huge issue that contributes to and compounds the issue yeah. of receiving it like inappropriate care because yeah. the, whole, like, the whole information isn't there, you know, the background. I feel like, Dr. Manchin, maybe you would know a little more about this. I don't know. Um, but, like, I feel like, uh, like, my own personal experience, when I went to my family doctor and I was like, my period pains are getting really bad, immediately she just put me on birth control. And I feel like a lot of women, when they say anything, oh, I have acne, I have anything, they, they immediately get put on birth control. And I'm no doctor, of course, but <laughs> I feel like giving hormonal treatment, drugs, yes, treatments, is a very... Interesting first step to literally any pu- like puberty related problem. I don't know if you could speak more to it's it or if you know true. about it,
2: but yeah. Yeah, I, I think that you're absolutely right. And it's not just uh a, a guess. I think that the evidence is there that just in general, like that's how like we solve these problems. And uh there are so many uh unfortunate, uh, things that are being undiagnosed because of that. So the symptoms are being masked by the birth control. They're not being solved. So mm-hmm. endometriosis is actually a huge problem that affects so many women who almost never get treated for it. The pain just kind of gets worse and worse. Uh, and then maybe one day down the line, they're lucky enough to find a doctor who's willing to give them a hysterectomy. It's actually very, very difficult for women yeah. to get hysterectomies. They have to like prove that maybe they've already had children or that their partner doesn't want them to have children. So yeah, talking about control over our own body is like it's yeah so that's a huge yeah an issue but I think that um yeah that you're absolutely tapping into uh one of the huge problems that that's uh, our first go-to is just yeah here's this very invasive hormonal therapy and we're not actually thinking about the root of why we're in pain and that's because these issues are generally just not researched Mm -hmm. so endometriosis and lots of other conditions like uh, PCOS um uh that can um also cause uh there's the studies aren't being done.
0: Yeah. Uh, and
2: so because of that, we don't have the treatments. Honestly, I, I just want to continue because I'm just learning so much as
1: well, just hearing everything, but we are running out of time. So I will have to wrap up today's discussion. I want to thank Emmy and Dr. Blanchette for being here with us. Um, I've learned so much. Um, and yeah, I hope to see everyone on our next episode of bipocalypse. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for
2: having me. I learned so much. You guys are amazing.
0: This podcast is produced by Ethnocultural Support Services at Western University with music from Artlist.io. See you next time.